Welcome to the Coaching at Henley podcast from Henley Business School. This podcast is for anyone interested in exploring the question, why coaching? Here, you'll be joining us in our conversations as we aim to spark provocative thinking, research and practice in the discipline of coaching. In the Coaching at Henley podcast, we share our thoughts, experiences and views on a vast range of topics linked to coaching and behaviour change. Each episode is split into segments where we either explore a piece of coaching-related research and the implications for practice, debate a hot topic in coaching, answer listener questions, or learn from a guest speaker. Hi, and welcome to the Coaching at Henley podcast. I'm Rebecca Jones, an Associate Professor in Coaching, and I'm joined in this episode by my colleagues, Abudi Sharbi, a lecturer in coaching. Hi, Abudi. Hello. And Jude Fairweather, also a lecturer in coaching. Hi, Jude. Hi, Rebecca. So in this episode, we're going to welcome a guest for our expert interview. We're also going to answer a listener's question, and we're going to tackle a hot topic in a Coaching at Henley Discusses. So first of all, we have our coach expert interview, which is where we share insights into practice from a subject matter expert. And I'm very happy today to welcome our guest, Narendra Laljani, who is a management educator, a consultant and a CEO coach with over 25 years of experience in leadership development and helping organizations become more effective. He's worked at board level with international corporations and has also taught on several leading MBA programs. And he's also program director of the Henley Executive Management Program. So today, Narendra, we're going to be talking about leaders as coaches. And I wonder if you could start by telling us, what is your understanding of this concept? Thank you, Abudi. Uh, When I think of a leader as a coach, I have in mind an individual who asks questions rather than tells people what to do, and in the process facilitates their development and growth. In other words, the leader engages with a coaching-oriented conversation that helps people to unlock their potential, maximizes their performance, and all in a way that helps them to find their own answers to the challenges they may be facing. This is really important because the truths people discover for themselves are the ones that endure. Otherwise, we'd need to go to a temple only once. Nice analogy. Thank you. I suppose one of the questions that we've been thinking about is, what do you think has changed in organizations that now require leaders to have a coaching style? What has changed in the external environment that influences how we lead? How do those things impact? There's been a paradigm shift over the years. And in some ways, this has been reflected in the arc of my own career. Abudi, I've been kicking around in organizations in some capacity or the other for over 40 years. When I started, the dominant belief was that the core management processes were planning, organizing, directing, and controlling. This is what managers did. You set objectives, identified a way forward, set up the right structure, told people what to do, and controlled everything through metrics. Now, perhaps that was a useful idea once upon a time in a land far away, but it all seems very quaint now because we live with unprecedented levels of disruptive change thanks to technology, globalization, social media, pandemics, geopolitical tensions, just to name a few. In this new environment, our traditional ways of working begin to break down. Take, for instance, the whole notion of planning, and then the business about directing people. That assumes that the leader is somehow omniscient and has some superpowers, which enable them to have all the answers, which, of course, they don't. 
So there's been a shift away from planning to agility, from IQ to EQ, from command and control to support and challenge, from a culture that focuses exclusively on getting things done to a learning culture that enables the company to let go of legacy ways of doing things and embracing new and innovative ways of thinking and behaving. All these call for a new leadership style. Now, this is sometimes defined as being soft. But guess what? The soft stuff is actually harder than the hard stuff. In the very recent past, for example, we've learned from the COVID-19 pandemic that we need to lead in a different way. We need more empathy, more compassion, more autonomy, more adaptability. So there's been a lot that's been changing. And what do you think are the benefits? I mean, I think you've already touched on this a little bit, but what do you think are the benefits of leaders having a coaching style? Well, there are so many compelling reasons for adopting a coaching style, and I can think of a few off the top of my head. Such a style enables new insights and perspectives. It enables a sense of inclusion. It generates commitment and is developmental. And as a result, you improve the quality of decision-making, you accelerate innovation, you foster greater levels of employee engagement and retention, and identify talent. Of course, you also contribute to the development of the next generation of leaders, and that's a legacy that will long outlive anything else a leader might achieve. That's a lot of benefits, isn't it? And I suppose if we want to be successful when we introduce coaching as a leadership style, what are some of the conditions that need to be present for organizations to achieve all of those benefits that you're outlining there? Oh, that's a great uh, question. I guess uh, the first thing is that the organization needs to have a commitment towards building a sustainable culture and, very importantly, a recognition that this takes time. It needs engagement at different levels. So we are not talking of just uh, one level of management suddenly adopting a coaching style. This has to be role modeled up and down the organization. We obviously need to support leaders with the right tools so that they can be effective in this style. And it will also require some reshaping of the performance appraisal process. So the focus is not just on the hard deliverables, but also how things got done and how people have grown in the process. And are there any circumstances, you know, when coaching as a leadership style is not appropriate? I think effective leaders have a range of styles and an ability to discern what's appropriate when. And uh, my psychologist colleagues describe this as behavioral complexity. I think that's a critical leadership attribute. And therefore, I certainly would not suggest that a coaching style is best in uh, all situations. For example, a crisis where the organization doesn't really have the time to engage in conversation and dialogue where speed becomes essential. There's often, as you know, a trade-off between speed and sustainability. So when speed is important, I guess it needs an assertive leader who calls the shots. Sometimes it may be that an important mistake may be made, which could have long-term consequences for the organization. And if the leader spots that, I think he or she needs to intervene. So there are situations where uh, coaching may not be the most appropriate style. And of course, it may also be that you have a very high performance team when you just want to stay out of their hair. 
So while it's a very valuable style, I think it needs to be seen in a wider context that leaders need more than one way and the ability to discern what's appropriate when. Thank you, Narendra. We've got time for one more question. And for people listening who might be interested in developing coaching as a leadership style, how might people get started? I guess we can all get started by uh, practicing a few simple disciplines. I think the first step is to invest the time and effort and make yourself available for having coaching-oriented conversations. I'm emphasizing this because often this seems like a slow and tedious way of working when you first embrace it. But then you need to remind yourself of the long-term prize. So that's the first step, making the time and space. Secondly, uh, you need to resist the urge to tell. And this is hard for many managers and leaders for whom being assertive and authoritative may well be part of their success recipe. So you need to remind yourself, as Marshall Goldsmith says, that what got you here won't get you there. This is a lesson in humility, which we all need to practice. The third is to ask open-ended questions that change the dynamic of the relationship, as well as the nature of the conversation. For example, one of my favorite questions is, what have you learned recently? Once people have recovered from their surprise at being asked such an unusual question in a business context, they will surprise you with their insights. The fourth, I guess, is to listen actively, to listen not only to what is being said, but also to what is not being said. And finally, you need to be open-minded. There's an old Indian proverb uh, that is a useful reminder. It says that the mind is like a parachute. It works best when it is open. And then if you're really serious about making a difference to your team as well as to your business, then you should consider investing in some formal development, such as Henley's new offering, The Leader as Coach. Thank you, Narendra. It's really rich answers. Thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So next is the You Ask Us segment. And in this part of the podcast, we take a question from our listeners and try our best to answer it. And today's question is, what are the pros and cons of internal coaches versus external coaches? And Rebecca, I thought I might start with you on this one, uh, because I, I think you've done some research in this area about internal versus external, at least. So, Rebecca. Yes. I have two studies, actually, which look at this this concept of internal versus external coaches and the relative benefits or when internal versus external might be appropriate. I suppose the main finding that's of interest here, perhaps, and it's a bit of a controversial way to start this discussion because it's from my meta-analysis, which I published in 2016. And this compared whether internal coaches were more effective than external coaches or vice versa. And we'd actually predicted that external coaches would be more effective. And, and we'd formulated some reasons around that. We felt like an external coach might provide more assurances of confidentiality, which is important in coaching compared to internal but we actually found the opposite was true in that study. So we actually found that internal coaches were more effective than external coaches. 
And I know that's quite a controversial finding and probably there are lots of external coaches listening that may argue that point. And I suppose the key here is any research finding is far from conclusive. It just gives us some information that is useful to consider. In the context of that finding, the reason that we, when we reflected on it and thought, well, why have we found this? We wondered whether perhaps internal coaches had that understanding of the organisational context, which was particularly impactful. So it helped accelerate the impact of coaching because they could provide that insight into the climate and culture of the organisation, which is particularly useful. But uh, yes, that's one of the things that we found in our research. Mm, Fascinating. And um, Abudi, what are your thoughts around this? It's very interesting to hear that research, and I'm definitely one of those external coaches who would have disagreed with that view. And I suppose I think that I totally get the idea that an internal coach will have the knowledge and understanding of the territory, but I think sometimes that can actually get in the way of the curiosity that an outsider might bring. So that's my kind of initial response. And that's always been in the past my argument for why external coaches could be better. And there's an, an uh, anecdote that was around in the early days of coaching that the Australian Olympic swimming team had a coach who couldn't swim and there's something quite powerful for me about that idea that we don't have to know the sector to be an effective coach. You bring up for me is this uh, the idea of collusion that um, that there's more possibility because the internal coach actually knows more about the organisation that they might collude more with the leader and that's that may or may not happen, of course, but there's more potential that that might happen. But but for me, having run uh, as, in, in the organization that I last worked for, I ran the internal and external faculty. I found value in both. And that was, uh, it was really important how we distinguish between where we used both. And one of the things that internal coaches has done is a bit of a democratization of coaching in the organization, allowing, because of the cost is lower, allowing more managers or people to actually be coached in the organization and therefore and with the cost of external coaching typically being higher and of course these are generalizations therefore we use the uh, coaches the external coaches for the uh, more senior members of the organization where confidentiality is can be quite critical especially at the top of the house so those are some of the initial thoughts that I had Rebecca what additional thoughts do you have Yeah, I was just thinking there about the influence and the importance of what the coachee perceives as important. And we we know this from lots of different psychological experiments. And and in fact, the reason why uh, medicine trials are double blind is because the power of what we think will work is so powerful. So you don't know whether you've got the placebo or the the actual medicine. And and equally, the researchers don't know who's having what because that perception of this is going to make a difference is so powerful. So what that got me thinking about in a coaching context is what does the client think will make a difference? Do they think that the internal coach who knows the organisation inside out is going to make a difference? Or do they want the external coach who's going to bring in perhaps that 
credibility or confidentiality or that external expertise. And it's linked to that idea of, do we need a coach who's got experience of working in the sector? You know, I know many coaches who have made very successful careers because they've left a particular profession and then they've gone on to coach people working in that same profession. But as Abudi said, you know, that, and in fact, I'd say what we reflect on most of our programs at Henley is that isn't necessary. And in fact, sometimes it can get in the way. But I suppose if the client feels it's necessary, that in itself is enough to make the difference. And I think that's an interesting an interesting way of looking at the internal versus external debate is what does the client feel that they want or need? The one angle that um, I don't think we've talked about, which I'll bring in just for the moment, is that one of the advantages of internal coaches and building internal coaches internally, especially when they're what they're called jobs plus coaches, they have their regular job and they do coaching on the side and we train them up as coaches, is that building of organizational capacity that can be so useful uh, across the organization because they don't just use the coaching in their coaching. They take that coaching across the organization to other parts of their of, of the organization into their regular job. So it's that ripple effect that I just love about coaching. That ripple effect can be so huge when we actually have internal coaches built internally that then take the uh, their coaching approach into other jobs. And um, we don't get that with external, so we kind of lose uh, lose that um, ability to seed and grow. I think that's such an important point, Jude. And it uh, we picked up on this in a previous episode, actually, where we were talking about can you ever stop being a coach? And we were talking about some of the problems with with that. But of course, these are some of the benefits that if you're internal to an organisation and you are supporting people as a coach then the benefit of that is, of course, that you might then take, well, you probably will take those skills and apply them in other contexts, either with the teams you're working in with or your colleagues or as a leader. Uh, I think one important point here, actually, that we haven't made is to distinguish between internal coaches and leaders who coach. So we just had heard from Narendra about the benefits of leaders as coaches, but of course, that is different to an internal coach because a leader as coach is a leader who is leading a team and using that those coaching skills to support their team. Whereas an internal coach is coaching individuals who they're not leading. And that distinction is really critical in terms of the power difference. And, and I'm guessing all of us here, but tell me if I'm wrong, would be advocates for all different types. So external coaches, internal coaches, and leaders who coach, because I think, as you mentioned, Jude, that's when we really see those benefits of the ripple effect and helping to create that coaching culture. Yeah, I wanted to actually go back to the point that you were making there, Rebecca, earlier in the conversation about if the coachee feels that sector experience is important, it makes it important. And I think that's a really interesting point to tease out, actually, because my experience is, you know, I, I'm not a corporate person. I don't have a corporate background. And some coaches have said, how can you help me when you've got no sector experience? And some of them have just chosen not to hire me. But those who have have said it's been quite helpful to have someone that I initially thought wouldn't be helpful, being able to be helpful because they don't have sector experience. And it goes a little 
little bit to what Jude was saying about the risk of collusion, but also, you know, naive questions from the outside that an insider wouldn't ask can often be really powerful. So I just wanted to come back to that because I think it is a really, it's a moot point that, you know, we could spend a lot of time thinking about. Yes. Uh, yeah, I agree with you, Abudi. And unfortunately, we don't have the time to spend a lot of time thinking about it as we are out of time. So thank you, Rebecca, and thank you, Abudi. And I'd just like to close by saying, please send us your questions for future podcast episodes, and we will have a conversation around them next time. Thank you very much. <music> So this is the part of the podcast where we have a hot topic in coaching and we share our views with the aim of provoking our thinking. So with Coaching at Henley Discusses, we want to encourage open discussion, reflective thinking and learning from one another. So our topic for this podcast, Coaching at Henley Discusses, is when contracting for coaching in an organisation, who is the client? So... Jude, Abudi, what are your thoughts when contracting for coaching in an organisation? Who is the client? Well, I, I think this is such an interesting topic and it's one that we spend time actually in the class talking about because people bring it up and the question typically rotates around whether the organisation is paying for the coaching or not. So that typically comes up. But it's interesting to think about the word, what is a client? So the word client. And, and for me, I think of the client as somebody who receives services, just to be quite simplistic, nothing uh, fancy about that. And ultimately, I personally believe the coachee's system is the client because of the ripple, as I mentioned in another the other conversation, the ripple effect of coaching in an organization. So when I'm contracting an organization for coaching work, I think about at least what's underneath what I'm thinking about is what's the work that needs to be done in the coaching relationship that enhances the partnership between the coachee and the organization that's in service of all stakeholders. And you know, obviously the organization is often represented by the line managers. Well, how do we actually set that up? And within that, because the relationship with the other person with the organization includes personal work for the individual uh, so that they are uh, in better relationship, if you like, or a different relationship with the organization. It encompasses the whole bit. And then, of course, it's about what's required of the system in order to make that happen effectively. And then that's when the contracting piece comes in, how that's shaped. So I'll stop there, but that's that's kind of where I start in this topic. What about you, Abudi? So I suppose, you know, it, I want to pick up again on what you said, Jude, about this definition or what we understand by client, because client is a very big word. And I think it might be helpful, and this is how I tend to think about it in these three-way situations, is that the organisation is the customer who's buying a service and the coachee is the person receiving the coaching and how to manage the tension between those two different relationships. You know, when we're coaching an individual who's paying for their own coaching, of course, they are the client and the coachee and the customer. And in an organisational setting, the organisation is the customer, but the coachee is the client of the coaching, if you like. So I think it's useful to think about the different meanings of client in this particular setup. Some interesting points there. I mean, Jude, how I'm really interested in 
And I'm sure some of our listeners will be with this idea around coaching the system and perhaps how that relates to the points that Abudi raised. And I know not everybody will be familiar with what you mean by coaching the system and how that might be different to someone that doesn't think in that way. I I wonder if you could say a little more on that in the context of this topic. So for me, the coach, the coachee is we're all in relationship with everybody <laughs> and the systems within which we are living and working, etc. So no, no, I guess the best thing I can say is no man is an island, as John Donne would say, no man is an island unto himself. So therefore, that's that's what I keep in mind as I'm as I'm coaching an individual, actually, regardless of whether they're inside an organization or anywhere else. But that also comes into play when it comes to contracting. So understanding the pressures on the client around from the system around them is really important. Thinking about the client in isolation and the coachee, if you say, and I'll, I'll use the language that Abudi's brought in, but thinking about the coachee in isolation means that we are forgetting that when they leave the room, leave the coaching room, leave the Zoom room, whatever, they are. Um, there's other things that are, are coming at play. So having contracting with the uh, the system, if you like, whatever that is, it can be a two-way contract, can be individual and just the coach, as long as that's explicit in how we're setting it up. Three-way with a line manager included, perhaps. Four-way with HR included. But this uh, this idea means that we need to have clarity and transparency. And so that's what comes to play when I think about this systemically. So what's the clarity and transparency, clarity of expectations and transparency of how we're going to work together, the what and the how? How does that come into play when I'm doing the contracting? So with the regardless, when I'm contracting an organization, when I'm contracting, meaning having the initial conversations in the organization with the coach, coachee, I will encourage the line manager to come into play and have a conversation around what does success look like for both of you? So they're, they're both hearing each other talking. So ideally, all both all three in the room at the same time and what success looks like for both of them, hearing them both say that and questions like what's the impact that you're looking for in the organization from this coaching relationship? Those are some of the questions that we'll explore together. Thanks for that, Jude. And I, I just... Just being completely open here, this isn't an area that I have a huge amount of experience with, actually. And and often my first response to this topic was, for me, the client is the person sat in front of me, regardless of whether they pay the bill or not. But I do appreciate that even in, in my inexperienced, from my inexperienced position, that in itself has caused me some issues in the past where the coachee has wanted hasn't been aligned with what the clients wanted and I've had this at the organize the client as the organization has wanted and it has provoked some inner turmoil in me around how to deal with that and I suppose the other thing that I was thinking as I was listening to you Jude is which was a lovely explanation of how it should work in practice and I can it completely makes sense to me but I'm also thinking of other examples that I've heard where even when you get everybody in the room, people aren't perhaps honest with what they really want, both the organization and the client. And then you, you're you then on your own with them afterwards and the truth comes out. And how do you navigate that in the complexity of this? And I, I think where there are relationship breakdowns in the organization, 
between the line manager and the individual, that's not that unusual for people to not be quite as honest and upfront at the beginning as would be helpful. I just wondered whether either of you have got any experience of navigating that or any thoughts on that? One of the most important things that we as coaches need is a trusting relationship with our coachee in order to be able to support the coachee in making the change that they're looking for. So clarity and transparency are important in that and how navigating something where the where there's a disconnect with the line manager and finding that out and navigating that means clarity and transparency with the various stakeholders that are involved. So being really, and you will, I would say that, I'll say this as this absolute, I don't think we can ever write a contract that covers absolutely every eventuality. That would be nigh on impossible. However, having the conversations and having the conversations in partnership with the coachee as we navigate that is what I've found to be very effective. And sometimes that can be quite tough. And it's tough for everybody. Actually, it's tough for the, usually for the coach and the coachee. And uh, the line manager is being held to account. So that it's tough for them too. So, But it's being important if we're being held to account for actually making a change, then it's important that we actually do that with the clarity and transparency. So contracting. In my supervision, when I'm supervising, these are often topics that come up, right? So what's gone, what's happened, what's gone on, and then what's the answer? Remembering boundaries, remembering contracting, and it usually comes back to the contracting. So now where do we need to go to revisit that as a, as a conversation that happens in the supervision room? Yeah, I guess that's a good point is that contracting can never be perfect from the start. And perhaps part of successful contracting is agreeing that you will recontract as more information becomes available. And and the other thing I, I suppose I was thinking, listening to you, is that apart from anything else, if it turns out that people haven't been transparent during the, the contracting process, well, I guess that's an interesting starting point to start the coaching conversation, apart from anything else. And it gives you knowledge about the system as well, Rebecca. Yes, yes. Exactly. Great. Well, thank you both for your insights into this topic. I'm sure it's one of those topics that we'll never really know the answer to if indeed an answer exists, but it it was great to discuss it with you. So I'd like to thank our guests, Narendra, and my co-hosts, Abudi and Jude, for joining me today. Thank you all for listening. We hope that you enjoyed it and we'll see you again soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Coaching at Henley podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find our podcast, including other Henley business podcasts from your usual podcast provider. To make sure you never miss an episode, don't forget to subscribe. We'd also love to hear from you. Tell us what you think about the podcast and please do send us any questions you'd like us to answer. You can email us via coachingpodcast at henley.ac.uk. Finally, you can connect with us on social media to make sure you stay up to date with any Coaching at Henley news. Find the link in the show notes. If you'd like to know more about Coaching at Henley Business School, check out our website.